listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture this morning, the first few verses from the chapter 5 in the book of James. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure during the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Jim, for that reading. This is going to be fun, you guys. We got, we got communist Jesus on the slides, right? And a reading like that. Uh, bad news for rich Christians. Let's, ah, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Um, so the good news, good news up front. This is the last week James talks about wealth. <laughs> Woohoo! this is it. This is the last one. Um, wealth and uh, money, the, the imbalance between rich or poor, it's been a, a recurring theme in the book of James. Uh, he's not a big fan of wealth, um, if you couldn't tell from that reading. Uh, and I am aware that that makes some of us very uncomfortable. Uh, and fair warning, too, uh, as you could tell, if, if you were uncomfortable by other stuff James has said about money and wealth, this is way worse. Uh, he goes out with a bang. Um, but we can do this. We're going we're gonna to tear off the Band-Aid today. And to make it kind of fun, I actually want to start with a game. Are you guys up for a game? Woohoo! Um, the game is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's called The Bible or Karl Marx. Uh, Car- Karl Marx, of course, um, not a provocative figure at all, the, uh, the inventor of communism. Oh, next slide, next slide, Vincent. The Bible or Karl Marx is the game we're playing. Um, here's how it works. I'm going to put a quote, we're going to look at a series of quotes on the slide, and you vote by raising your hand if you think it's from the Bible or from Karl Marx. Make sense? Okay, and then, and then at the end, after we've gone through them all, we'll, we'll see how you did, okay? Um, let's start with a warm-up practice quote. It's the first one. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. How many of us think that's the Bible? By show of hands. Okay, hands down. How many say Karl Marx? And how many of us notice that that's from the passage Jim just read for us? Good, good, you're paying attention, excellent. I am, that is so, that's, that's good to see. Um, okay, now it's for real, that was practice, that was warm up. The rest of these are a bit trickier. Uh, number two, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. How many of us say Bible by show of hands? Okay, a few, a few. Hands down. How many say Karl Marx? Okay, that's like a 50-50 split. That's pretty close. Again, we'll, we'll look at the end and we'll see. So maybe you're keeping score hopefully on your own. Uh, number three, third quote. We got eight, by the way. 
A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. How many say Bible? Okay, a little more for Bible. How many say Karl Marx? Couple. Okay, all right. Number four, I think we're up to. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. How many for Bible? Ooh, not many. Okay. And how many for Karl Marx? Okay, Karl Marx got that one. Number five, we're halfway through. Is it not the rich who oppress you and drag you to court? How many for Bible? And how many for Karl Marx? Well, Karl Marx has that one too. Okay, all right. Number six. Those who desire to be rich fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, plunging people into ruin and destruction. How many for the Bible? And how many Karl Marx? Okay, that's not like a 50-50 split there. Very good, very good. We've got two more, two more. You're doing great. Number seven. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. How many for Bible? And how many for Marx? Okay, Bible got that one, but it was close. Last one, number eight. Bring down the powerful from their thrones and lift up the lowly. How many say Bible? All right, and how many say Marx? Okay, all right, Bible won that one, but again, it was close. Are you guys ready to see how you did? Let's look at the answer key. Let's see the solutions. They're all from the Bible. <laughs> it was a trick. It was a trick. I got you. I got you. They're all from the Bible. Um, <laughs> uh, every single one of those quotes was from Scripture, right? Um, we got, we got a couple from Proverbs. We got a couple from James up there. Paul gets some action with uh, 1 Timothy. And, of course, uh, Luke 6, woe to you who are rich. That's from Jesus. Fun game, huh? Give, give yourselves a round of applause. You guys did pretty well. So the point of this game, uh, for one, is that we need to read our Bibles more, right? That's, it's always a good reminder. Um, but... This game also points to a consistent theme in the Bible, which is this warning against wealth. Typically, when we talk about uh, money and wealth in church, we focus on greed as the problem. Greed is the sin, right? Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with money. It's greed. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's true as far as it goes, but the Bible is also very concerned with money, with wealth on its own right. There is this persistent warning against affluence, against acquiring wealth and possessions. We've already seen a few of these warnings in the book of James. Um, You also get a lot of this in the teachings of Jesus. If we look at some of the stuff that Jesus has said about money, um, of course, this was in the game, but woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. That's from the blessings and woes uh, in Luke 6. Uh, Tell me if you heard this one. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How many of us knew that? See, I wasn't going to put that in the Bible of Karl Marx because you would have known that too easy. Um, And then, of course, there's the story of the rich young man who uh, comes to Jesus asking how to get into heaven. And, you know, Jesus tells him to say the sinner's prayer. He leads him in a conversion. No, he doesn't actually do that at all. He He doesn't try to convert him. 
He doesn't talk theology with him. He doesn't pray with him. He tells him to sell all his stuff. Go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Why is the Bible so down on wealth? Why did Jesus and his brother and so many other authors in Scripture warn us so persistently against being rich? This is a really important question for us because we happen to be among the richest Christians to ever live. If you are a Christian living in America today, you are automatically richer than 80% of the world's Christians, just right off the bat. And you are far richer than Christians have been historically. Um, This is true even for those of us in the middle class and working class. Most Christians today live in the global south. Uh, Places like Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, there are way more Christians there in uh, generally poorer parts of the world than there are in Europe and America. And it's not even close. It's not even, it's not even like a 50-50 split. Not close. In fact, if you were to look at the average Christian alive today, if we were to take like all the demographics of all the world's Christians and kind of average them, the average Christian alive in the world today is a poor, young, brown-skinned woman living in a third world country, most likely Africa or Latin America, somewhere in those regions. We are insanely wealthy by comparison, which means that we have to grapple with this question, why is the Bible so down on wealth? What is the problem with wealth? I want to read our passage for us one more time, just so it's fresh, just so we can steep in it a little bit longer. This is James chapter 5. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure during the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. I don't know about you all, but that scares the hell out of me. Like, that is terrifying to read as a white American in the 21st century. Um, We have talked about wealth so much in the book of James, Uh, but today, today I really want to drill down on the why. Why is this so important? Why does James keep talking about this? What is it about wealth that is so inherently dangerous for Christians? I reflect on this a lot this week. I thought it over. I I read through this passage over and over again. And based on these verses, I pulled up six dangers of wealth. I put them all in the, there they are. They're all on the slides right now. Six dangers that we can pull out. Uh, We're going to We're going to go through these. We're going to keep them all up here at once so we can move through them uh, hopefully a bit more quickly. Uh, And then after we get through all this, we're going to talk about what to do about it, okay? Let me just read it right off the bat. These are the dangers of wealth according to James chapter 5. It doesn't last. It implicates us in injustice. It puts a, oh, you can can stay with it doesn't last highlighted, Vincent. It's okay. Um, It puts a barrier between us and the poor. It dulls our perception of God. 
Wealth robs us of heavenly perspective, and it aligns us with the kind of people who killed Jesus. This is going to be, this is going to be heavy. <laughs> you guys, this is, that's why we did a game first. Um, let's go through each of these. Uh, the first one, though, wealth doesn't last. We have done this one to death. We've covered this one before. It was a big theme in the book of Proverbs. Wealth doesn't last. It runs out. It's finite. Um, it goes away. Your riches have rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. If you put your trust in wealth, it is guaranteed to fail you. There is this myth in our society that money will solve all your problems, that wealth insulates us. It gives us this buffer. To a certain extent, that's true, as long as it lasts. But it will run out. Your wealth will run out, probably sometime in your lifetime. Best case scenario, you die rich and someone else gets all your money, which like, yay, I don't, you know, like, but that's, that's, that's like the closest we come in our culture to success. Because we've talked about this before, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, that's just a refresher on that first one, and the rest of these are way more pressing anyway. Um, let's look at these next two. Wealth implicates us in injustice and puts a barrier between us and the poor. <coughs> Those insulating effects of wealth, where we have a buffer against the troubles of life, those don't just apply to our circumstances, uh, they apply to people as well. Wealth cuts us off from the poor. Uh, wealth creates a distance both geographically and spiritually between rich and poor. Uh, it can take the form of white flight, where um, well-off, typically white households will move out of the cities and into the suburbs, uh, taking their wealth, their tax base, and a lot of the businesses with them which leaves those urban areas that they leave behind way worse off. It's bad enough to separate ourselves from the poor when we think about how God shows up in poor communities, how God is active among the poor, but this also highlights the damage that is done by our wealth, how our wealth implicates us in injustice, how simply having wealth ties us into all sorts of evils. Um, look at the evils of our financial system, just as an example. Banks that give high-interest loans to poor folks and subprime mortgages. Banks are able to do that. They have the financial base to do that because of the money that we invest in them. I'm lucky as a pastor um, because my retirement account, the 401k equivalent that I sock money into every pay, it's managed by our denomination, and they have very high ethical standards for how they invest clergy retirement savings. Um, like, I've got peace of mind knowing that none of that money is going toward weapons manufacturers or mortgage speculation. Businesses that break up unions and underplay their employees, we don't invest in that. But a lot of retirement accounts do. That's how you make the most money often. And that's just one example of the damage that's done by our wealth. We can also look at our consumption habits. What are the working conditions of the people who harvest our food? Um, the people who mine precious metals for our electronics, for, for uh, can't get out of my pocket, for these things, right? Uh, the Amazon delivery driver who doesn't get a bathroom break, right? Our country makes up 5% of the world's population, but we consume more than 25% of the world's resources. Our wealth implicates us in that. It ties us to it. That's one of the dangers of wealth. 
Wealth also dulls our perception of God, puts a spiritual barrier between us and God. I can't tell you how many times some, typically it's a well-off white person, will ask me, what's the point of church? What's the point of what you do? Why, why do Christians get together for an hour on Sunday mornings? What's the point? And I'll usually say something like, well, uh, church is about worshiping God. We sing songs of praise to God. We come around the table at communion. We remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's about community. We come together. We pray together at church. We support each other. We have opportunities to serve, to welcome outsiders, to show hospitality. We see God at work in the lives of others, and it strengthens our faith. I say all of that, and nine times out of ten, the response is, well, yeah, but what do you get out of it? What, what would it benefit me to go to church? Which is like a terribly affluent question. But of course, there I go judging again, which was last week. So, um, <laughs> But there is the spiritual numbness to sort of 21st century American culture. It cuts across generations and geographies. A lot of us just aren't hungry for God anymore. We don't sense, we're not aware of our hunger for the Spirit. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but I think a big part of it, we don't know we're hungry for God because we don't know what it is to be hungry for anything. We're not familiar with that urge. This is part of the reason why religion is booming in poorer parts of the world, in poor communities, in immigrant communities, while churches in Europe and North America are dying off. Wealth dulls our perception of God. It, it bends our antennas in a way. Wealth also robs us as heaven, of heavenly perspective, this next one. Um, James writes, you have laid up treasure during the last day. You have nourished your hearts in the day of slaughter. That's very hellfire and brimstone, but the way I would put that, <clears throat> the way I would look at that is that our faith gives us this perspective that all this is temporary. Everything you see around you is passing away. As Christians, we're not supposed to have a stake in the empires of the world. We're not on a team in all the little tribal divisions that mark our culture. Our team should be God's kingdom. Our job is to be ambassadors of hope, representatives of heaven, resident aliens who seek to share God's love with our neighbors. That's the kind of language the Bible uses to talk about Christians. But wealth gives us a stake. It links us to the powers that be. It puts us on teams that we are not called to be on. And it can kill that heavenly perspective. The last of these dangers is pretty dark. But we got to talk about it. Wealth aligns us with the kind of people who killed Jesus. As James puts it at the very end of this section, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus was killed because of a plot between the temple authorities and Rome. Religious power and state power working together. What did the Romans and the temple authorities have in common? Like, were they on the same team religiously? Were they on the same team politically? What, what linked them together? Money, money, wealth linked them together. Jesus 
was costing them money. He was telling people to leave behind their possessions and follow him, and a bunch of people were actually doing it. Once Jesus started flipping over the tables of the money changers in the temple, he was dead in under a week because he was costing them money. Wealth aligns us with the kind of people, the kind of power that killed Jesus. And that is incredibly dangerous for Christians living in the most powerful, wealthiest country in the world. Let's take a breath for a second. Let's just rest for a second. Because I know that was a lot. How are we doing, by the way? We, we, we okay? We're good? I got some thumbs up? Good? I, I, know, I know that was a lot. Thank you for sitting through all that. But these dangers, this is the why. This is why so many Bible passages over and over again warn us that wealth is a danger in and of itself. The problem's not just greed. It's not just the love of money. Money can be dangerous on its own. Affluence is dangerous. The modern American middle-class lifestyle is spiritually dangerous. I don't want to cut myself off from the poor and all that God is doing in, in poorer communities. Uh, when I think about my kids, I want them to do well. I want them to achieve their dreams, land good jobs, be, be better off than me someday, but not if it's going to numb them to God. It's easy to look at all this and lose hope, right? We can, like, throw up our hands in the air in despair because it's just too big. Easier to just kind of ignore all this, plug up our ears, don't ever read James again. What was Pastor Dan thinking, right? Like, and just move on. But instead, let's talk about what we can do. Let's look at a few steps that we can take as relatively rich Christians to uh, curb this danger. I got three things, uh, three points of application. The first one's kind of obvious and uh, fair warning. It's going to sound dubious coming from a pastor, but we're going to talk about that. Um, But if wealth is such a danger, we can give it away. Get rid of it. Unload it. That's the first point. Next slide. Perfect. All right. Let me say up front, this is not a sermon on tithing or giving to the church. Um, I'm super grateful for everyone who supports our church and the work we do financially. We wouldn't be able to do any of it without you, so thank you for that. But this is not a stewardship sermon. This is not a tithing sermon. And by the way, you should be very suspicious of anyone who tells you wealth is evil, or yeah, money's evil, so give it to me. Like, big red flag, big red flag. Don't, don't, yeah, no, don't fall for that. I'm thinking less about tithing and stewardship and more about our formation as Christians. How do we break free from the dangers of wealth? Dying penniless is not a bad goal. Uh, I'm saving for retirement. I'm doing like the responsible thing you're supposed to do. But if I'm on my deathbed in 50 years with like six figures in my bank account, I'm gonna feel like a bit of a failure, honestly. I don't want that. And that's because I have learned, I've been inspired by a number of older, wiser, wealthier individuals I've known who are on a mission to give away their wealth before they die. Some of these folks are in this room, by the way. But it's amazing. Um, I hear the stories from them, the testimonies of the impact they've been able to see their wealth make on causes they care about, communities that they have a heart for. And it's absolutely incredible. It's like life goals right there. Obviously, not all of us are in a position to do that. 
For many of us, the, the thought of giving away any portion of our wealth is probably terrifying. Um, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you're working two or three jobs just to make ends meet, being generous carries risk. But as Christians, wherever we're at in life, giving money to people in need should be a financial priority. Using whatever wealth we've got to bless others and make the world a better place should be a factor in our financial planning. Uh, when Aaron and I got engaged back in 2009, I think it was, um, one of the first financial decisions we made together was we got a sponsor child. We knew that we wanted giving to be a central part of our lives together, so we got a sponsor kid through World Vision. I think over the years we've had like three or four sponsor kids. That's a decision we made really early on. And there were seasons of life where money was tight and we had to cut back on other things we were giving to, other causes we wanted to support. But we had that sponsor child as kind of that core commitment. One thing you can do as a family, and this is great with kids, grandkids, little ones, teenagers, is get the whole family together and talk about giving. Sit down as a family and talk about what you really care about, what's on your heart, what communities do you care about, what pain in the world is moving you that you actually want to do something about. Then go on the old Google, find a nonprofit that's doing good work in that area, and give to it. 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks. Find something you, your family cares about and support it. Where I think the church can help with this is by giving opportunities to practice generosity. Because it doesn't come naturally to us. Um, parting with our wealth is not easy. It cuts against everything kind of capitalism tells us. So we need practice. And church is a place where we can do that. Um, often when there's a natural disaster somewhere in the world, we will share information here in church about where you can send money to help relief efforts. That's part of the reason why. Um, every month we have a communion offering, which is a special offering for some kind of ministry, cause, or nonprofit outside the walls of the church. This month we're raising money for uh, world missions. You could commit 10 bucks a month to the communion offering and unload some of that wealth. Brockport Community Connection is collecting money right now to provide Thanksgiving meals to needy families in our community, in our neighborhood. Talk to Joni or Pastor Alicia and find out how you can get involved and support that. We have our Helping Hands Fund, which is the money that we have, um, that we pull from whenever someone comes to the church in need with like an unexpected bill or car expenses or rent, gas money. You can give to Helping Hands Fund any time during the year and help us support our neighbors. And another example that I have to cite because it's so recent is Halloween candy, right? <laughs> like we just did, we just did Trunk or Treat, right? Upwards of 700 kids descending on our parking lot Friday night. And every one of them left with a boatload of candy because you all stepped up and donated it, which is amazing. Especially because I heard from a number of you last week about how expensive candy is these days, right? Like, um, I, someone came in here who had spent, dropped like $100 on candy, and it was like four bags of candy. Because if you get the good stuff, you know, like Reese's, uh, Snickers, that's, that's like 25, 30 bucks a bag, um, which is just ridiculous. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if I could think of a better way to blow $100. Bring joy to some kids with some candy that will rot their teeth 
and draw closer to God in the process by unloading a little wealth. Sign me up for that. If you want to counter the dangers of wealth, start by giving it away. Practice generosity. That's thing number one. Second thing we can do is we can stand with the oppressed in their struggle for justice. Stand with the oppressed in their struggle for justice. Now, I've been told a couple times I talk about justice too much up here. Um, It's a frequent critique of my preaching. Uh, Stop being so political. Stop giving us economic statistics. Focus on spiritual stuff. This is spiritual stuff, you guys. Um, If you're a middle-class Christian in America, where you stand on matters of justice is a spiritual issue. It might even be a salvation issue. It could be the one thing standing between you having a deeper relationship with God. And this is an area where I actually think we need to do more as a church, not less. We talk about justice a lot in here. I preach on it. We've done amazing book studies, uh, events like Just Desserts, all really good things. We have opportunities to serve through Gathering Table, Teen Closet, but we could be doing so much more. Just like the church should give us opportunities to practice generosity, I'm coming to believe more and more that the church needs to be giving us regular opportunities to practice justice, to do things together that will actually make a a difference. Um, What's stopping us from staying after church for 20 or 30 minutes one week and participating in a letter-writing campaign around some justice issue that's on our hearts? Um, Over the last few weeks, I've made uh, contact with a handful of activists in our area, uh, in our community, and I've been asking them for concrete ideas, actions we could take as a congregation on a Sunday morning after church to help advance the cause of justice and to stand with the oppressed. My hope is that by the new year, we might actually have something like that once a month where we just stick around after church and do something. That would be amazing. Be something that our families could participate, children, youth, seniors, together, trying to make the world a better place. So I'd ask, as you're thinking about our church, as you're thinking about the future, keep this in your prayers. Be praying for some opportunities to do more than just talk about justice together, but to actually work on this stuff together. One more thing, last thing we can do as rich Christians to blunt the dangers of wealth We can soak in the Bible's perspective on wealth and possessions in order to live it out. We are bombarded 24-7 with advertising, messaging, cultural assumptions about money and wealth and success that run completely contrary to the gospel. This is why so many of us hear the words of the Bible and assume it's Karl Marx, right? Like, we we don't know because we're bombarded with this other stuff We don't know what the Bible says about this because we're not grounded in the Bible. The best practice you can do on this front is to just read the Gospels. Read the stories about Jesus that we have in our Bibles. I know I'm a broken record on this because I say this. I probably give this recommendation like quarterly. um, but, But one of the best things you can do as a follower of Jesus to grow in your faith, grow closer to him, is read the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew is 29 pages in our pew Bibles. I checked this week. I counted. 29 pages. Most adults could knock that out in like an hour and a half, two hours tops. 
Set a Bible on your nightstand or in your office, wherever you're going to be often, with a bookmark at the Gospel of Matthew and read it a little bit each day. Don't analyze it. Don't try to knock it out in a certain time frame or like, let's see how much I can cover if I have a half hour. Let's, you know, don't do that. Just soak it in. Read it a little bit at a time, day after day, and keep moving that bookmark. If you miss a day, if you miss a week, fine. Go back. Keep going. Move that bookmark. When you finish Matthew, read Mark. Then read the Gospel of Luke and John and Acts. All four stories about Jesus and the story of the early church. When you get to the end of the book of Acts, move that bookmark back to Matthew and do it again. Um, I have talked to a few of you who've actually done this or who are currently in the process of doing this, and it is amazing what happens when we soak ourselves in the teachings of Jesus. The dots we start connecting, the stuff we start noticing, uh, the way you start to see the world differently and get really uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the power of these stories. The world bombards us with ideologies about wealth that are not helpful. We have to counter that with the ideology of Christ. Your faith should make you uncomfortable on a weekly basis. That's bad news for rich Christians. Let that bad news soak in until it changes you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.